Welcome to the National Capital Bible Church. Glad to have you all here this morning. It's a, a wonderful day because we have much to do this morning. Today is our communion day as well. So communion is a special day for us. I always look forward to it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. He who believes in the Son is everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see his life. In other words, eternal life. But the wrath of God abides on him. Let's take a few seconds for us to consider our souls and if we have anything that needs to be confessed, this is your opportunity. And we do this privately. And at the same time, we're also relaxing. We would like to focus on the service, all that we will do this morning. So I ask for you to take a few seconds, and then I'll open us in prayer. So let's close our eyes and bow our heads. Dearly Father, we're thankful that you are our God. There is no other God. And there are many who pursue what they would consider to be another God. But there is only one God. And therefore, we're thankful that you are not only the creator of the entire universe, but you care about us. You love us. And... Because you do, you sent your Son, your only Son, to be our Savior. We're thankful that he has gone to the cross to pay for the the guilt that we have from our sins. And everyone has sins. And sometimes we have many. But we're thankful that it makes no difference how many there are. Although, it is certainly better for us to grow spiritually But we know that the Lord Jesus Christ has paid for all of these sins, the guilt of all these sins. And we're thankful, Father, that you have taken that responsibility for us. Father, we're also thankful for God the Holy Spirit, who is our helper. He is our teacher. He's the advocate that we have, who goes to our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our intercessor for us. And Father, this is a wonderful spiritual life that we have that you have prepared for us. We ask for your blessing upon our service today. We ask, Father, that we will be focused on what you have provided for us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, as we continue, actually, one of our passages, let's turn to Isaiah. Last month, we read from Isaiah 53, and we read 
the first, actually the first three, I think. And today, I have five here, but we'll actually start in verse 4. Isaiah 53, we'll begin our reading in 4. Now, Isaiah is prophecy, and this is the prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ and who he was in the future. He would, in fact, be our Redeemer. And here we have, uh, in verse 4, Surely he, and this happens to be the Son, he who has borne our griefs. And, of course, griefs here are a reference to our sins. Surely he has borne, and the word borne here might confuse some of us, but he carried it is another way of saying this. But he has carried our sins and carried our sorrows. And the sorrows here, we could also say, are the hardships that apply to us. Yet, we esteem his stricken. Now, you'll notice as we go on in these verses, we're going to see that the Lord Jesus Christ in the future is going to the cross, many who believed he designed to go to the cross. And so here we have, surely he has carried our sins and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, punished, smitten by God and afflicted. And so many believed that he should have gone to the cross. Verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. In other words, he died for our transgressions. He was bruised. He was crucified for our iniquities, our sins. The testament for our peace, in other words, for our, uh, the trans- tranquility that we had, that's what we were getting. The, the gale. So our peace was upon him, the son, and by his stripes, the son's stripes, the whippings, we were healed. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. So it should have been four through six here. But this is the sense that was being written by Isaiah about the future of the cross. And we'll pick this up on our next communion service in verse 7. All right. In our communion service this morning, the Lord's table. We have gone over the uh, Lord's table what is happening prior to his time on the cross. So this morning, we'll simply start with the purpose, the purpose of the Lord's table. We know who the Lord Jesus Christ is. And the purpose of the Lord's table is to remind us of the grace provisions of God the Father in providing all the needs to be done for our salvation. This salvation is not dependent upon 
who and what we are or what we have done, but depends completely on who the Lord Jesus Christ is and what he accomplished on the cross. And this is something that's very important to us. We realize as we come to the Lord's table that we are dependent upon what the Father has provided for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord's table is designed to help us to remember who the Lord Jesus Christ was and what he accomplished on our behalf. It's designed for us to remember and to focus on the biblical truth that is taught through the symbolism of the the elements. It is not the elements themselves that have significance, but it is what the bread and the cup represent that has meaning. We are not to worship the elements, but the person and the truth that they represent. And this is that is sometimes misunderstood. Some believe that the symbols are special in themselves, but the symbolism of the elements helps us to understand Christ is and what he has done. The unleavened bread pictures the Lord Jesus Christ in his humanity. The Lord Jesus Christ was fully God, undiminished deity, But he was also true humanity united in one person in his first advent. In other words, in his advent, he was both human and he was God. In his human body and his life, he was without sin. He was qualified to go to the cross and there to die on our substitute and to take upon himself the judicial penalty of our sins. The cup symbolized his blood, which represents Christ's work on the cross, his spiritual death, the payment for the sin of the entire world. Christ experienced spiritual death upon the painful experience of paying for those sins. He died spiritually on the cross so that we might have spiritual life. Therefore, the bread represents our Lord qualifications in his person to go to the cross, and the cup represents the sacrifice of Christ upon the cross. These are the thoughts that we should be concentrating uh, during the communion service. Since his death on the cross paid for the sins of the entire human race, there's nothing we can do to add to it. There is nothing we can do to earn or deserve salvation. Salvation is simply an acceptance, is an acceptance of free gift. Scripture says, as many as receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave to them the authority to become the children of God. Salvation is achieved by faith alone in Christ alone. The Lord's table is for anyone who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see, that's important for us. Uh, it's not something special about us. It's what we have, what we have believed. And it's for anyone who is a believer. And here we are. The Lord's table is for anyone who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
The Lord's Supper is not restricted by church membership. It is open to every single believer. We always begin with a brief period of silent prayer so that each one present may exhibit his own hearts or his soul to ensure that there's unconfessed sins in the life. I'm going to ask the deacons who will be passing the elements to come forward. And as they come forward, we will bow our heads together in silent prayer. I'll ask Bill to offer a prayer for thanksgiving for the bread. After we have passed out the bread, it is our tradition for us to wait for everyone to receive. Now that we have the the bread, the bread as we call this, um, once more the waver or the unliving bread represents his body, his sinless perfection as he went to the cross. The same night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This bread is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. I will ask David to offer a prayer for thanksgiving of the cup. It is our custom to hold the cup and wait until all have served. The cup of juice represents his blood, which in turn represents his spiritual death on the cross. The Apostle Paul says, In him we have redemption through his blood, his spiritual death, the forgiveness of sin. So in this same manner, he also took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is in the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Dear Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you've provided for us this pattern, this model for us, that we may continue to remember who the Lord Jesus Christ is, what he's done for us. And, of course, it's your plan. It's your plan that expresses your love and the Lord Jesus Christ who provides for us the salvation, redemption. Father, help us to remember every time that we have the communion service, that it is significant to us, that we're able to concentrate to make sure that, Father, we will never forget. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Matthew 26.30, we're told that Jesus led the disciples from the Lord's Supper, and they sang a hymn before they departed. And that is part of our tradition. This is our opportunity to worship the Lord in giving. The Apostle Paul says that the person who sows sparingly 
will also reap sparingly. And the person who sows generously will also reap generously. Each one of you who should give, just give as you decide in your own heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion because God loves a willing giver. Dear Heavenly Father, we are thankful that we have this opportunity. We ask, Father, for your blessing upon the uh, our gifts. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I'd like to spend a little time about the Pentecost. What is Pentecost? And most of us probably today would not have even known that today is Pentecost. Let's turn to our reading. I could call it our called worship. But let's take a look at Acts 2. Acts 2. And while this is important for the Old Testament, but as we look at Acts 2, we understand that the day of Pentecost is going to be a special day to the church. There's a lot to be known about Acts 1. This is after the Lord Jesus Christ has departed, is in heaven sitting at the right hand of his father, and the disciples are waiting for what we would probably call God the Holy Spirit and what he's going to give to us. And this is the change from the Old Testament, the methods that we had there, and now it's going to be something different, and it's going to be the church. And in chapter 2, we're speaking here about God the Holy Spirit, and he is coming to the church to be part of us as believers. Remember, the Lord Jesus Christ said that when he left, the helper would come. And that's the completeness here of the fulfillment of the prophecy. Verse 1, when the Lord of Pentecost had fully come, and when we see the word Pentecost, we are immediately going to ask ourselves, what do we mean by the word Pentecost? Because it's a Greek word that it's not something that really defines for us, and we need to find it for ourselves. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound, or we could say a noise from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind. And the word here for wind can be translated wind, but it can also be translated breath or spirit. So there's a rushing mighty spirit or wind that we hear. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire and one satting and one sat upon each of them. And there's a belief that the twelve of the fire here are going to appear and sit on the disciples, God the Holy Spirit. 
But at this time also, what we're going to see is that God the Holy Spirit is coming to believers who are now going to be part of the church. So it says, and and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues, other languages, as the Spirit came upon them utterance. And so we have here the Pentecost day. And you'll notice in verse 1, it says, when the day of Pentecost was fully come. Well, let's just say that Pentecost means 50. And so when the 50 days has come to fulfill, so we have the fulfillment of what? What do we have the fulfillment of? Pentecost was one of the three major Jewish festivals. The other two are the Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles. So one is in the first part of the seasons, and the last one that we've just discussed will be in the fall. And we have now the Pentecost in the middle 50 days after the Passover. From the Greek word for 50, Pentecost was so named because it fell on the 50th day after the Sabbath of the Passover. So what we're going to have is the Passover, which was the Lord Jesus Christ, on the 14th day, the Passover is going to be sacrificed or killed that day. And it's going to be eaten on the 15th day. And then on the 16th day, there will be a start of the unleavened bread week. And so what we have now is we have to find out when this time is going to affect Well, this tells us we're going to have 50 days. So we are going to have seven days of seven weeks. And the last day, the 49th, is going to be a Sabbath. And so the next day is called Pentecost. So from the Greek word for 50, Pentecost was so named because it fell on the 50th day after the Sabbath of the Passover. In other words, the 50th day of the seventh weeks after the first fruit of barley. Now, we remember that there are going to be harvest days. One of them is going to come, first of all, for the barley. And that happens right after Passover. And so we would call that the first day of first fruits, but it's barley. And then we're going to wait 49 days and finally the 50th. We are going to have the first fruits of wheat. And that's where we are. So in other words, the 50th days of the seventh weeks after the first fruit of barley Harvest, Pentecost is going to known as 
the Feast of Weeks. So we have this Feast of the first of the weeks of the weeks. So Pentecost was known as the Feast of Weeks, the first fruits of the wheat harvest, and the day of first fruits. So it's called both of those. As a matter of fact, we actually have three. It can be called the first of weeks. It can be called the first weeks of weeks. And we can also call it the day, the feast of weeks. As a matter of fact, that's what it's going to be called throughout most of the New Testament. During the harvest celebration, the Jews brought to God the first fruits of their harvest in thanksgiving, expecting that God would give the rest of the harvest blessing. In other words, they would give the first part of the first fruits. And then after that, the rest of it was a blessing from God. So this particular day of Pentecost was the day of first fruits of Christ's church, the beginning of the great harvest of souls who would come to know Christ and be joined together through the work of God the Holy Spirit. And so here we have begun the the fruits that are going to be understood as part of the church. So it says here that they were all in one place, the place may have been part of the temple. It is difficult to imagine how the large crowd mentioned in verse 5 could observe the activities in the upper room because we're going to see there are thousands of individuals who are there for this feast, and they are going to hear the languages that the disciples who will be the apostles will hear this. And so we think that this really did happen in the temple and around that. So first of all, we have Acts 2, 1 and 2. And for you, I think reading Leviticus twenty three fifteen would be important for you. The Feast of Weeks, seven weeks, the first fruits of the wheat harvest. So please make a note and read about Leviticus 23 because there you're going to see the special days that Moses is going to provide for the Israelites. And each one of those, in other words, for us, the as I've already mentioned this, Pentecost is going to be the beginning of the church, the first part of the church. And as you read through Leviticus 23, you'll find that there's much there to learn about what is happening. But I do want to stay with our teaching with 1 Corinthians 9. And today, in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27, we're going to see that Paul is going to teach us about running the race and receiving the award or we could say the award or the reward. So, before we read 2427, Paul is concluding, he is concluding 
his thoughts in chapter 9. He has been devoted himself to the gospel ministry and the believers in Corinth. So he has here twice, uh, I think, in mind as he's speaking this. He has the gospel ministry, and he also has the teaching of the believers in Corinth. Now, Paul will describe his ministry. He will teach that ministry like those participating in Corinth, or it's the Corinth Games, but it was actually known at the time as the Isthmus Games. And today we call them the Olympics. In the previous paragraph, Paul speaks of reaching or winning unbelievers by the gospel. The word win is used several times. Paul desired to win unbelievers to the gospel. Now in the last paragraph, we're going to see here in 24 through 27, Paul speaks of success in his ministry, which he compares to a prize in the games. And we'll see in verse 27, we see that Paul is also going to say that there is an opportunity here for us to succeed. And if we don't, then we will not receive the rewards that can be ours. Let's read chapter 9, verses 24 through 23, through 27. 1 Corinthians 9, beginning in verse 24. It's always difficult for me to read through this paragraphs without stopping. But here we go. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Verse 26, Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Now, there are seven words here and several phrases that I think we can add to a better way of understanding it. And that's what we try to do uh, every week on Sunday. So here we are on 1 Corinthians 9.24. Now, this is simply written here. Do you not know that those who run in a race indeed all run? But one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Now, there is much here as far as the grammar can help us. First of all, this is one of those verses that says on the one hand and then on the other hand. And that's where we are here. First of all, verse 24, it says, On the one hand, 
Do you not know that those who run in a race, and I'd like to add, indeed, all run. On the other hand, one receives the prize. And that's what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. And we could say, saying to us, that there's a competition here. But this is the uh, the games. And Paul is going to change this when we get to the final phrase. He's actually not having us competing each other. But he's really speaking about the spiritual life. And are we committing ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ? So, he then says, run in such a way that you may obtain it. And the word here for run is an imperative. So, he's not saying, this is a good idea. He's saying, you are to run. And it's a second plural. So, it's not just one individual. It's all believers. And the way to understand this, in the working translation, do you not know that all the runners in a stadium compete? And I like to understand that. That helps us to understand he is talking about the Isthmus games. But only one receives the prize. So run to win. Now, again, there's only one award or reward for us. But he's telling us, all of us, second plural, we are to compete in the spiritual life. Another way, don't you realize that in a race, everyone runs? But only one person gets the prize. So run to win. Now, Paul is using this as a game. And the game here that we're using is the spiritual life again. So, Paul once more speaks to the believers in Corinth about what they clearly know. And the answer when he asks the question is, yes, you do. You know this. You know that anyone that's in a game is out there to run, to win. And he says, so you know that. Yes, you do. Secondly, what they know is about all the details of the Isthmus games. Third, what the Corinthians know is that those competing are doing so to receive a prize. Fourth, Paul's comparison is the competitors, the ones in the game, to help the believers in the spiritual life. In other words, he's trying to get them to understand their spiritual lives. Fifth here, first of all, they are not simply spectators mentioned by Paul. So you'll notice here that he's speaking to all of them, and he's not speaking to anyone that's in the crowd. He's not speaking them uh, as as those who are watching. Six. Second, the believers are not are not spectators, but competitors. These competitors are believers who serve. 
So seventh, third, Paul uses an imperative. Run so that the believer is to participate in the spiritual life. And eighth, Paul tells us, second person plural, that we are to receive the prize. All believers can receive a reward, an award. So it's not as in the games, there's one, it's there are rewards for all believers. All right. 1 Corinthians 9.25 And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate. We might say it is earthly in all things. So, and everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to a, they, meaning those who are, that are competing in the games, do it to obtain a perishable crown. But we for an imperishable crown. So Paul makes the difference here. Another translation, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get the crown that will last forever. And the second one here, translation, all athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it an eternal prize. All right. First of all, Paul commits to his way, his method of ministry that did not come easily. So he's using the games, the Isthmus games here. And this was not only challenging, but it was exceedingly difficult. Secondly, Paul's ministry required personal discipline, strict training, or rigorous control, like that of an athlete who strove for excellence in his field. Third, Paul then willingly gave up certain privileges which he might otherwise enjoy so that he could win the prize. So athletes, for the most part, and I think this is true, Those who want to win, they ply themselves uh, and they will remove certain things from their lives so that they will be able to compete uh, and actually win. Paul was willing to give up certain privileges which he might otherwise enjoy so that he would win the prize. Fourth, the prize for Paul was not a temporary earthly crown, stenophos, given by men, but the eternal crown given by Christ. Fifth, Paul's crown would be the consummation of the reward that he would partially enjoy, the opportunity to glory before Christ in those he had been able to win. So, His reward is partially because of his accomplishment, but also for believers who would be reward as well. So in verse 26, 
Paul continues to use the Isthmus Games as his example of his ministry. Verse 26, Therefore I run thus, or in this way, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. The way that I think this is understood is, Therefore I run, or I compete, in this way, not with uncertainty, not without a goal or a purpose. Then, or thus, I fight, not as one who beats the air. All right, let's look at our some other translations. Therefore, I do not run uncertainly or box. And if you read this box, if you're not someone who understands boxing, you may not understand what the word box here, so I just put in punch, or punch like one who hits only the air. So that's not who he is. Therefore, I run with purpose in every step. I am not just shadow boxing. All right, the points here. Paul knew the ministry given to him. His ministry was the preaching of the gospel, proclaiming the gospel. Secondly, Paul devoted himself to his ministry as if he was competing the Isthmus Games. So he uses this comparison. Those who are competing are giving as much as they can give, if not all. Paul is going to say, I'm doing the same. Paul uses the comparison of a runner and the boxer. It would have been, forth, it would have been worthless or aimlessly if a competitor did not have a goal. So he's going towards this goal. So fifth, the goal was to hit the opponent, not merely training without competing. So if we're going to have a boxer, they're not just trying to train. They're trying to be a an exceptional boxer. And then verse 27, 1 Corinthians 9, 27. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. So what we have here is I think a little bit easier way to say this, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest or for fear that when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. And the word for disqualified here, it means to fail the test. So um, another working translation but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest or for fear that, after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified or fail the test, the competition. The last translation here, the working translation, I discipline my body like an athlete, training to do what is should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. And what do we mean by disqualified? Well, 
First of all, in the first part of verse 27, Paul speaks of the competitor who trains his body and keeps his body under self-control. And the word they use here is subjection. So he keeps his body under self-control. Secondly, the second part of verse 27, Paul applies the context to his example of the spiritual life. So we go through verses 24, 25, 26, and the first part of verse 27. Paul uses the games, the Isthmus games, so that the sense of competition is there. But the last part that we see here, he says, lest or for fear that after preaching to others, I myself should become disqualified. And so this takes us from the uh, competitors to the spiritual life. Three, the context in the paragraph is competing, is competing for a prize or an award. Fourth, the word disqualified or unapproved remains with the context, an award, not something without meaning. And so he's not speaking to the competitors. He's talking about us as believers. Five, while some have applied disqualified to be lost of salvation, which is not found anywhere in the paragraph. In other words, there are some when they read this word disqualified, they'll say, yes, you can lose your salvation. Well, there is nothing in the paragraph that tells us that there's some way we could lose our salvation. Six, the context remains to refer to prize or award or a reward. The reward applies to the the judgment seat of Christ. That's where we will find ourselves, whether we have received the reward or we could say the prize. Seven, in other words, Paul is referring to being tested and failing the test. That's what he's saying when he comes to that I myself should become disqualified. Our application here, as believers, we must discipline ourselves so that we do not fail the test. We fail that we might lose, we might fail routinely. So that's what Paul is saying here in verses 24 through 27 as he finishes the chapter of uh, chapter uh, chapter 9 because as we begin chapter 10 it appears that we're going to be answering another question that comes from from the Corinth church but this is uh, Paul encouraging the believers to live their spiritual lives not just to sit around not to be a uh, someone who sits in in the stadium, but to to discipline themselves and to receive, we could say, the Lord's place uh, for us. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this day. 
We're thankful that we have the opportunity to be obedient, to live our spiritual lives every day. And Father, we pray that as we serve, that we will, in fact, be rewarded. Not failing, but being rewarded. And this is the opportunity for each of us. And Paul, as he says in the second person uh, plural, he says that we all have the opportunity to reward, to be rewarded. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.